What is going on, guys? It's your host, Mark Real. It is Thursday, July 15th, 2021, and we have a special two-for-one edition here on State of the Family Courts. Um, tonight, we are welcoming attorneys Keith J. Flynn and Brian Jackson of Dads.Law. They are attorneys based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, gentlemen, uh, thank you both for joining us tonight. How are we doing in o Oklahoma? Very good. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll go ahead. We'll hop right in. Uh, as always, every week, we're going to talk uh, Oklahoma law. And we've had some uh, movement, actually, this year when it comes to the family code in the state of Oklahoma. So we always start out uh, National Parents Organization graded out Oklahoma in 2019 as a D plus. So slightly below average when it comes to equal and shared parenting. Well, we did have some positive movement. Um, Keith, do you want to explain to the viewers what we saw in the state of Oklahoma this year and what will go into effect in November? Well, we're really seeing a big move in favor of fathers at the temporary order stage. So we're talking about when you're filing that paternity or that divorce action, when the judge is making a decision about custody at the early stages. The legislature has basically said, judges, you guys got to make findings of fact, conclusions of law, and there is a preference that, you know, equal shared parenting time is the goal here. There's several statutes in our state which would argue that uh, joint custody and equal shared parenting are the goal of these courts, and this findings of fact and conclusions of law required will point the courts basically to make a decision about that or specifically make a finding against you. Yeah, and, and we talk a lot on here. There are several states. Uh, Tennessee got it this year. Oklahoma, obviously. West Virginia got a version of facts, findings, and conclusions. Um, and, and Brian, I'll ask you this. What, what, is the, what is the biggest takeaway or what is the biggest benefit to fathers uh, when it comes to now the judge has to, in those temporary orders, um, do the facts, findings, and conclusions of law? Well, I would say it starts by eliminating the tendency of some some judges to reflexively assume sole custody of the mother. Um, it, this, it sets the starting point as more or less equal time with each parent. And then if the court wants to deviate from that, it has to show a specific reason. And that's, first of all, going to force the judges to really think about it. But I think it also, in a, in a worst case scenario, if you do get a really unfavorable ruling, at least you're now creating a specific record as to why, which, you know, in, a, in the long run can can stack up and help you help you better um, pursue an appeal if it comes to that. Hopefully if you don't help. mind, I'll also add, this is yeah. the early stages of your case, all right? We're talking about the first time you get in front of the judges. This is going to set the pace for your case and for your custody. And so right now we're here early and we're getting the opportunity to get you in the door. Otherwise, we're setting the tone for, you know, what do you usually call it? The, uh, the, the minimum visitation the schedule. The minimum visitation schedule. And so, you know, guys, we're getting ahead of that. We're getting you in the door. And judges are going to have to expressly provide why they're deviating from this preference that you're a player in the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Brian. One of the, the things that, that it's worth pointing out, at least in, in uh, Tulsa County, is that temporary order very frequently can can um, set a status quo that the judge will go by later. Absolutely. And you only in Tulsa County, you only get usually one bite at the apple with the temporary orders. So if the court starts out by awarding mom full custody, you're fighting an uphill battle when you get to final disposition to try to turn around and get joint custody. Um, so starting from that standpoint of we're going to start with 50-50, um, just gives you a better chance of setting a good status quo. And to some extent, it also removes some of the incentive for the other side to try to really fight you over, um, joint custody, because now they're going to actually have to come into court and say, and explain to the judge why you shouldn't have joint custody as opposed to getting coming in and saying, well, I'm the mom, so I should get full custody. And that is taking a lot of leverage off the table in property division. So, you know, we're not going to be paying for your kids as much 
now that we've got this. And so kind of piggybacking off of that. So it's creating more, more equity. Attorneys know going in generally what's going to happen in those temporary order hearings. Which So have you seen in Oklahoma, are there more settlements that occur pre-temporary orders um, because of this? Or has it kind of stayed business as usual where the judge has to make a decision? Well, it's not in effect yet. I think the original presumption was good as well. Uh, I'm shocked by the D plus rating, frankly. Uh, and, I, and, and I frankly think that is reflective of rural slash urban counties here in Oklahoma. And you're going to see drastically different treatment by the courts, depending on the county that you're in. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've practiced both in Tulsa County, but also in some of the rural counties in the northeast corner of the state. And it's a really different environment. Tulsa County is tends to be more inclined towards joint custody anyway. Our judges are very are good in that regard. But you get some rural counties where you just have judges that will just flat out don't agree with joint custody, despite what the legislature has to say about it. It's like Sharia law in some places here. Yeah, and uh, that, that's definitely an accurate statement. And so you're fighting an uphill battle to convince a judge because they're going to look at it as you're trying to take the child away from its mother. Particularly with children under the age of four years old. Which goes back to everything's been proven false about it, but we, we had laws on the books in many states that were reflective of the tender years doctrine where men aren't capable of providing the care to a child under the age of five years old. I think you see a lot of that in the state of California as well. Um, it is something that is, uh, I, I'm in Southern California, so I'm in some of them, I'm practicing in some of the most populous states in the country um, and some of the most progressive counties in the country. Uh, you get into the Central Valley, you get up in Northern California, and it's a much different story. There are three judges. They've probably never opened the family code this millennium, and they just rule by how they feel. So that, that's definitely something you see here in the state of California as well. Um, so I want to turn in terms of Oklahoma law. You mentioned the property division and the leverage that creates. How does that work for married men in the state of Oklahoma? Well, I mean, you're obviously always talking about getting as much access as you can in most cases with our clients. And the, re the reality of it is, is that women are going to make any claim they can in order to disrupt a custody award in order so that they can acquire as much property as they can in the division. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. I think that's a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of my clients the same way as well. It's one of those things where it's like, we'll give up the TV, we'll give up equity in the home, just give us more access. So being able to get away from that trade where the child is essentially property, I think is a huge step forward. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, guys are giving up the house or anything, you know, really in order to uh, advance child support, so that it reduces the incentive for women to reduce their visitation in order to acquire a monthly payment. And so if we're able to advance a large amount of child support, uh, it takes you know, the incentive to try to get a monthly payment from them off the table. Yeah, that's that's definitely a, uh, a a big win when we can remove child from or children from everything else that's going on in the divorce. So is there anything else before we hop in and we start talking about some more general topics? Is there anything else exciting going on in Oklahoma? Any rumblings of anything? Anything that's unique to your state? I know you guys I don't know if you you, pra you practice in the more urban areas, but I know having uh the uh, we've had actually someone who was a judge in uh, in tribal courts. Um, is that something that you guys venture into? Does that impact your practice at all? We practice all over the state of Oklahoma, including in tribal courts. You know, my uh, preference is that it be filed in state courts. The other concern here with tribal courts generally is that under ICWA, the state is required to provide active efforts if there's an adoption without consent or a guardianship in place. Whereas, you know, a tribal court can completely avoid ICWA active efforts and that can really hurt dads here in Oklahoma. 
I would, I'd also add, at least in my experiences with um, practicing tribal court, I have found that some of these judges in tribal court can be far more unpredictable than district court judges. And so you, in some cases, it's almost like dealing with a jury, is you just never know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I can recall one particular instance that I dealt with where a judge gave one parent custody one month and then that parent didn't do something he wanted them to, pissed the judge off and went to the other parent the next month. Which, how is that in the best interest of the child to be <laughs> at the whim of a judge or the whim of anyone for that matter? All right, so we touched on it a little bit, but before we hop into um, talking about some more general topics, so where can they reach you guys if they're in the state of Oklahoma um, and they're in the market for legal representation? Well, I think you need to check us out at dads.law, and uh, we'll definitely get back to you. Just come to our website, drop us a line, and Awesome. Awesome. I mean, I know Keith, you're on Facebook. It's Tulsa Father's Rights Lawyer. That's correct. We've okay. also got the Oklahoma Father's Rights Support Group. We've got a thousand members here in Oklahoma. Uh, many fathers, many people who are just supporting fathers, whether they're relatives uh, or uh, new spouses, etc. Awesome. Awesome. So the Oklahoma Father's Support Group and uh, Tulsa Father's Rights Attorney, and then go find them at dads.law if you're in the market for an attorney. Um, so as we transition, I always like to give the disclaimer. So I am an attorney in the state of California. Keith and Brian are attorneys in the state of Oklahoma, but nothing we're about to discuss should be construed as legal advice. We're doing it for educational purposes only, and nothing can truly replace you having a conversation with a family law attorney in your state. So if you're in California and you want to have that conversation, reach out to me, realfathersrights.com. If you're in the state of Oklahoma, reach out to Keith and Brian at dads.law. So we're just doing this for educational purposes tonight. So we'll transition to more general advice and what you guys see and how dads can better navigate the system the way it's currently designed. So we talked about Oklahoma made a huge step forward when it comes to getting that facts, findings, and conclusions and getting that little bit stronger presumption in the temporary order, which I point out to our viewers was the same thing the state of Kentucky got the year prior to passing their 50-50 bill on final orders. In 2017, they got the presumption of equal and shared parenting on the temp orders. And in 2018, they passed it on the final orders. So this is something we talk about getting those first downs is a big deal. So what do you, what advice would you give to guys? They sit down in your office, or I guess in 2020, 2021, you hop on a Zoom or a phone call. What is the first piece of advice you would give to guys who are getting started down this journey and are going to be navigating the family law court systems? Well, it obviously depends on whether or not they're coming in the office with a paternity action or divorce action and uh, how long ago the conflict or separation occurred, frankly. But generally speaking, in both cases, my advice to you is the game can be rigged against you. There are tools which women can use to, frankly, completely screw you. Uh, protective orders, allegations of domestic violence, which will completely change the game for you in terms of the risks of litigation and potentially ancillary proceedings like criminal cases and protective orders. Yeah, let's go. Let's go ahead and stay on that. The the protective orders. We'll start out with how the protective orders play out in family court and how guys can potentially avoid those. And then we'll, we'll also jump in on the criminal side and how it can impact your case in family court. So the biggest the most, the the most what, important thing to do when you're considering a protective order, okay, is that if you're going to go to a protective order docket where a judge is effectively only seeing protective orders and has no other ability to proceed or receive any evidence related to anything else, you are automatically disadvantaged. In Oklahoma, there is a statute 
which requires that your protective order is consolidated inside of your family case. Okay, so we're going to be able to get you a much better, bigger show in terms of your court hearing if we're able to consolidate that over. Do not show up to the protective order court, even if you think that their, you know, allegations are completely nonsense. Do not show up to that court because these protective orders are designed to come out in their favor. No judge on any docket wants to be the judge that didn't issue a protective order when somebody gets beaten, bad, or killed. And the reality of it is, is that they're going to rubber stamp it, and it's sort of their job. I mean, the, the standard is a preponderance of evidence. It's going to be a credibility question, and if she cries and looks credible, a protective order is going to issue. Now, we cannot get rid of a final protective order. So if you put that hearing on, that final protective order goes out. Well, that's not entirely true. There's a way to get rid of it. We've got to reconsider it in certain ways. But the reality of it is much more difficult, much more expensive for you. If we're able to consolidate that, bring in a bigger picture to a judge, they're going to see everything. The custody is going to be a part of it. We're going to be much better able to fight that protective order. And as much of an inconvenience it is to you for that protective order to get past 60 to 90 days, it's definitely in your interest to consolidate that protective order, bring it into the custody litigation so that we can bring a global picture in front of that judge. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest, the, one of the biggest things, the point I, I take away from that, that I have conversations with clients all the time, because I would say 75% of my clients have either been, uh, had domestic violence restraining over order requests in their case, or they have a domestic violence restraining order. It is by far the most common situation, um, at least here in California. But the biggest thing I see is the guy comes in and he's completely flustered because it's just he said, she said. And this is completely false. And, and immediately the man wants to attack her and why she's an abuser. And I always have to sit the client down and say, the judge doesn't care. That's not what's being heard at this hearing. What's being heard at this hearing is whether or not she's met, she's able to meet the burden to get the restraining order granted against you. You can't get a restraining order granted against her if it's her hearing requesting it. Yeah, and the problem is it's res judicata, guys. So if you put that final on and the judge finds a reason for a protective order, that means that your family judge is going to rely on that to apply all these other statutes that apply to guys who beat their wives. And the, you know, the difference could be attorney's fees, the difference could be you getting supervised visitation and a whole other host of problems. I mean, Mark was talking about California's laws where there's like a five-year presumption involved. Thankfully here in Oklahoma, it's not quite as onerous on you know, our guys, but it's still not a you know, it's still not a fair game. If that protective order comes out, the judge is going to re rely on the findings of the protective order judge to make a whole bunch of conclusions about you, your kid, and what's going on in your divorce or your paternity case. Yeah. yeah and you mentioned, Brian. Oh, I'm sorry to jump in there. Um, I would add to one of the risks you run to if you if you go into to these hearings immediately and don't and and don't come at it from a more holistic approach like what um, Keith was talking about by joining it in the family matter. Um, you probably won't have time to do discovery, which uh, you are allowed to do in Oklahoma. And that will give you a, an opportunity to pin her down on a story, which is your, when you're talking he said, said, she said, that's your best bet for discrediting her is to catch her where she's changed a fact or there's something omitted. Or, But um, the other thing is, is with these hearings, a lot of the fact I'm finding a lot of protective order judges that are not limiting the complaining witness to the scope of what they pled into court. And that's a real risk you take when you go take that up at a hearing, especially if you try to go it alone, because a, a lot of these attorneys representing women know that and they'll throw as much stuff at the wall as they can to see what will stick. And, um, 
the result is you may end up getting a protective order for something that wasn't even in the petition and you had no idea that was coming. Trial by ambush, guys, and it's nonsense, and you need to protect yourself. And attorneys can investigate their claims for you and nail them down to exactly what they're going to bring in court. Yeah, and I and this is a conversation I actually had today, the discovery piece. Here in California, you request a restraining order, they grant a temporary restraining order, and you have maybe it's less than 21 days. Usually you're going to have anywhere from 7 to 14 days before the initial DVRO hearing. The only thing in the state of California, the only weapon you have of discovery is to immediately notice and subpoena them to appear for a deposition. We do and that all the time. The, the sole purpose of that is to tie them down to a very specific story. And then as attorneys, we can come back to you and check the text messages, check the emails, check the timelines. And then we show up and we know exactly what their story is going to be and we know their weaknesses in it. And it's unfortunate, you mentioned in Oklahoma, there's a way to kind of delay things where you have the more full scope of written discovery because the, de the, the deposition can be three, $4,000 if it ends up being a four or five hour deposition. And that can be an inhibitor, but that's the only tool that you have to dispose of those ambushes that they may come at you with in the state of California. We get a lot more time. I mean, frankly, we get a lot more time, Mark. We're able to pass these things in order to conduct depositions and discovery and written discovery uh, to, to tie this thing down to exactly what it's going to be when it goes in front of the judge. I've also had some success in these cases where occasionally you'll get one that's so flimsy you can actually un, um, attack it on the face of the pleadings under, yeah, yeah. under Oklahoma law. And I've had some success with some of the some of the some of the weakest ones. Um, you'll have people who frequently say, "Well, he calls me or texts me too much about the kids," and try to call that harassment. And I've had some success with judges just filing a motion to quash it. And um, even if they don't quash it right then, I found that the judges will look harder at whatever it is she says in testimony. Yeah, that's that's another issue with the California Family Code is uh, disturbing one's peace can be considered domestic violence for the purposes of our Family Code Section 3044. Yeah, so um, I, I always warn guys the first time I meet with them, you every once this process starts, once she's filed for the DVRO, and let's say they have brief peaceable contact for purposes of visitation, like you need to every single text message you send. You need to be the most pleasant human being on the planet. It needs to be about the kid and it needs to be brief because we get these mean text DVROs in California and it's mind boggling at times. Like this guy's definitely no threat to the kids. It's mom and dad bickering back and forth and a guy ends up with the DVRO. And like you mentioned, Keith, then it means five years of a presumption that they should not have custody. So it can be tough. We certainly advise clients similarly, Mark just based on the fact that, you know, custody arguments are better suited. Specifically, I mean, if you want joint custody, obviously disruptions in your ability to co-parent will work against that. And, you know, there's no doubt that women get a better show in family courts anywhere in this country. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And it's not fair. It's not equal process under the law. But it is what it is, guys. And so you got to play nice. And it sucks that they're going to hold you to a higher standard. But we're talking about your kid. So a lot of times we're telling clients, eat it, do what you got to do. You know, what's the end game? What really matters in this situation? Is it exactly. your ego or is it your relationship with your children? Exactly. Exactly. Um, All right, guys. So we are going to go to a quick commercial break here. We'll be back on the backside to talk more about Oklahoma law and tips for dads. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, 
Access Services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $35 a month. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. What is going on, guys? Mark Real, uh, host back with you. We are talking tonight with... Uh, Tulsa Family Law Attorneys or Tulsa Fathers Rights Attorneys, Keith J. Flynn and Brian Jackson of Dads.Law. Um, want to continue on um, with kind of one of the topics we just touched on. And it's something that I think that a lot of times gets overlooked in a dad building his case in court. And that's the discovery aspect of things, getting that information. So I want to pass it off to you guys. Can you talk about some of the tools that can be pretty cost effective or even pro se litigants can utilize to gather information from the other party? I want to start off by saying that I do the game a little bit different than most lawyers. And the way that I play the game is I throw out a deposition and I will investigate every avenue that they may be creating or storing evidence and create the story from the start before I submit written discovery. And then I'm able to go to a judge later and say, well, they didn't give me this. Maybe they deleted it. They didn't give me this. Maybe they deleted it. They didn't do this. You know, they told me this six months ago. Now they're telling us this. And so that's a higher end game though. So if we're talking about discovery- Can you, can you explain deposition to our viewers here? Exactly so what goes into that and how it works. A deposition allows me to bring her into my office for a period of three to six hours and basically ask her as many questions as I want to. And generally speaking, the goal is to one, create her narrative in a transcript that's transcribed by a court reporter and then to allow me to figure out exactly what I want her to produce, what I want her to admit, and what I want her to provide me in list form in interrogatories. Okay, so we get the deposition. That's kind of the, that's the biggest weapon in the toolbox because you just get to have a conversation, like you said, in your office, on the record, under oath, for three, four, five, six hours where you can just get any and all questions answered. There's pretty limited objections if they have an attorney. You really get pretty much any information you can ask for during that time period. In Oklahoma, they're only allowed to object to the form and the client has to answer my question. Yeah, so essentially they're just objecting for, per for procedural purposes essentially. Perfect for maybe using it in the future, if they want to dispute the fact that I'm impeaching them based on some question that I've asked. And when I say impeaching them, I mean basically making them look bad in court, making them look uncredible. Basically, impeachment is you're looking for situations where their story's inconsistent. Precisely. You're catching them in a lie. Exactly. So now we'll turn, we do, so deposition, in all cases, they would probably benefit from a deposition right away. Like you said, it's kind of a higher end game. It can be an expensive upfront cost on top of having to pay for all the filing fees and everything else. But if it's possible, that's something you want to do right away to pin them to the story. Now you get that done, or let's just say you just financially, it doesn't work where you can do that. And we move on to written interrogatories or, or written discovery. Can you talk a little bit about that and how dads can utilize that to gain that information? It depends on your stated objectives and your goals, frankly, how you target written discovery, because you only get so many bites at the app for written discovery. Now that's not entirely true because you can always 
ask the court to give you more opportunity. But in reality, usually you only get so many questions to ask and so many interrogatories. How many, how many is it in Oklahoma? Uh, for interrogatories, production, yeah. or admission. Uh, interrogatories. Interrogatories, you get 30. Yeah, so California, you get 35, and then you have to go in front of the judge. So when I say discrete subparts, I mean that, generally speaking, when we advise clients when we're defending discovery, a lot of times these lawyers will throw out a whole bunch, you know, and you are, uh, you're not really required to answer all of it. And you're allowed to object if they exceed 30. When I say a discrete subpart, I mean, you know, in each individual piece of the list that they're asking for is a discrete subpart. Basically, if they're putting, ask the question, A, B, C, D, E, each of those can be counted as a question. One, two, three, four, five, exactly. And yeah. so you may see 30 interrogatories in reality, it might be 90. And California has something really cool. Um, it's FL 145, which is actually, California is a pretty exclusively a form-based practice when it comes to family law. You submit forms and then you can submit declarations, briefs on the back end of these forms. And in the state of California, we actually have, and there's really no excuse for a dad not to utilize this, but we have a form that is the form interrogatories that don't count against your 35. So we have a form you can send to the other party and it's got 20 questions on it that they have to answer. And those are just freebies. We've got production like that locally. Mm -hmm. um, we've got what is called a DR5 production and they're required to produce certain materials to you, but it's not quite like that as far as interrogatories. It doesn't get very detailed, but it's something. It forces them to put something on the record. And a lot of times you can use that form and then you can attach customized interrogatories, requests for production, requests to admit on the back end of that. So we'll transition. I'll, I'll let you take a crack at this one, Brian. So we have the interrogatories where you just get to ask questions and they have to give you a written response. So we have other pieces of written discovery. The uh, most notably the request to produce and the request to admit. Can you tell our viewers a little bit about those and what the differences are between them? Yeah, requests for admissions are more or less what what um, what they say they are, which is the request is to uh, admit or deny a certain factual statement. So, for example, if you have um, like a, a domestic violence case, you might ask the person like. Uh, admit that um, so and so never never actually put their hands on you, just as for instance. Mm -hmm. And they're required to either admit it or if they deny it, then if you prove it up later, there can actually be a monetary sanction involved for them deny, um, denying it when it was true. Um, request for production can be request to produce like documentary evidence. Um, you can ask for things like text messages, social media, audio recordings, video recordings, photographs, um, computer records. There's a, it's pretty broad. And under Oklahoma law, it, it's not only just what's relevant, but also what could tend to lead to relevant evidence. So you have pretty broad uh, discretion to ask for things. Um, and uh, as long as it's not like unduly burdensome, like give me every, every scrap of paper you ever wrote anything down on, for example, um, you have pretty, pretty broad uh, uh, discretion to ask for them to produce whatever you want and you, and it, and you can get it. I yeah. wanna, I wanna add to the request for admission, guys. If you're doing this on your own, okay? Don't ask her to admit some conclusion that you can ask the judge to make on his own. Ask them to admit components or uh, criteria or some kind of element that you can actually then say, well, they admitted this, they admitted that, they admitted that. Now you can make the conclusion that X is thing. Because usually they're not gonna admit 
your broad scale conclusion. But you guys know your cases way better than we do. I mean, Mark, you agree, right? There yeah. is. They, they Client owns the facts. It's our job to build the strategy. Exactly. So you're asking them to admit certain behavioral traits or instances, etc., which you can be like this, this, and this. Now, judge, you make the conclusion this. And that will make your case easier in front of court because she's admitted this, this, and this. And if she doesn't, when she goes in front of the court, you can be like, hey, remember that? You already said, you already said this. Go look at the elements. Go look at your state laws um, in terms of what needs to be proved up. You, like you said, you're not going to get them to agree to some broad sweeping statement that sunshine and rainbows, you're the greatest dad on the planet. But you can get them to agree to small elements or even halfway agree to an element and it's improving your case. If you can say, hey, she kind of agreed to this, like that element, then it's kind of taking it out of the judge's hand. It's like, she's already said that. So be microscopic and know, you got to know your state laws and you got to know what's actually gotten, got to be proved up in court and be strategic with it. Couldn't agree more. And those admissions are really useful for that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So we'll move on. Um, kind of a, a little bit of a change of, of pace when it comes to uh, the topic here. But when a, a guy gets into or is in, is in the process, is going through the family courts, what are some actionable steps for our dads who are stuck in the system or some, some actionable positive steps for guys who are just getting started out that can help, if you're their attorney, help you out and help them have the most successful outcome possible? I'm not completely understanding your question, Mark. Sorry, I, I was a little, I, I went around in a circle there. So guys, so guys, guys, you have a client and what are some things that are going to make his life easier or how is he going to be able to help out his attorney or help out his case as it moves through the system? What are some, what are some bad things you see guys do that you would like to fix? Why don't you take that? Well, one thing I see happen from time to time is guys that resort just to what I like to call self-help, self yeah. um, which is almost never a good idea. Um, examples was like, um, okay, she's not, um, this one's what I run into, mm -hmm. uh, at least I'll have guys ask me about this a lot. She's not letting him see the, see the child pursuant to, to a schedule, or maybe he's not seeing the child at all. And so he's, he asked me, well, can I withhold child support? Or can I go pick, just pick the kid up from school and take them home? Um, and first of all, if there's a court order in place and you defy it, you're going to face immediate consequences for that. And the judges will come down real hard on you for that. And, and fortunately, it's many times they'll come down harder on men for the same behavior that they're not coming down hard on women for. Um, but even if there's no court order in place, if you do something like, say, you know, Say that you're you just filed your divorce. You don't have a temporary order. There's no a formal custody order in place, and you decide to show up at the, the, your child's school, pick them up from school, and take them home with you instead of what's normally going mm -hmm. on. Even if the judge can't like hit you with a contempt citation or something, what can happen is she's going to go into court and and present that in the worst possible light, and um, you're going to be stuck having to defend that action. And judges don't like self-help. They will pretty much always take the attitude of, you have the option to avail yourself of the court, please do so. So that's one that, that mm -hmm. I see more than, I would, that I, than I'd like to with people that they, that they get mad and they decide I'm going to resort to self-help because the court's moving too slowly or they're not doing what I want. Another thing that I think is a po on the positive side that men can do and should do, we talked before about text messaging. I always encourage my clients, if they have to deal with an ex, even if it's friendly, always, always, always make a record. Um, either do it by text, do it by email. Um, telephone, like verbal telephone calls are okay. Oklahoma is a one-party consent state, so, so you can record the conversation, whether she agrees to it or not, and you should. Because that's your, one of the best protection you have of a couple of things. It makes it harder for her to make up, make up things about what you might have said to her, 
But even on the less serious side, if you want to get joint custody, one of the things that's useful to show a judge is that you and she can work together as a business unit. And if you have a long history of text messages of, you know, reasonably cordial professional conversation that you can show the judge, um, that goes a long way to establishing to that judge that you are in fact capable of working together. And at least in Tulsa County, most of the judges want both parents in the picture, provided the parents want to be in the picture. I actually, I had a custody case recently that that was one of the main things that turned the judge's opinion was that I had like something like 700 pages of text messages of the two parties communicating as cordial adults, even though they hated each other. Mm -hmm. I want to add two points, if you don't mind, Mark. Go for One, it. You know, overnight visitation is extremely important, especially if you're trying to reduce child support. You get 121 overnights here in Oklahoma, you're in the money, you're getting a child care credit. You're up to 132, it's even better. 143 and above, you know, you're at the top of the game. The other thing here is, in the worst cases here, where we're talking about either a default decree for some kind of a divorce, or you don't even have rights because they haven't been established in the district court, okay? The, what they'll argue is a substantial erosion of relationship. And women, it's psychologically proven. There are studies out there that suggest that women will replace fathers. They will nest with some other dude and try to replace you as a dad, okay? I hate to see these AWOC cases. When I say AWOC, I mean adoption without consent of the father, where they're trying to replace you and terminate your rights. And the, what Brian's talking about here is creating evidence that suggests that there's not a substantial erosion of relationship. Put yourself in a position. Nowadays, you know, kids have phones. You know, kids have social media. Kids are on the internet, etc. Get yourself in a position where you're communicating with your kid, where it's in writing, it's proven, and they can't come back and say you don't have a relationship with your kid. The worst case scenario is a judge doesn't even want to hear the kid because it's in their interest not to bring him into court, not to hear what the kid, you know, the relationship you've had. And you've got to prove that you've got a relationship with this kid and mom's completely denying it, and you don't have any kind of physical evidence proving that you do have a relationship with your kid. So, one, it's communication with mom. Two, it's communication with your kid in a way that is tangible and physically provable in a court of law. And I think you, you brought up a point I think is a very common question I get, and I'm sure that you get it from the dads you work with. So they they have limited visitation or they have limited access or access has been completely denied and they believe the kid will side with them what is your advice to dads who come in there and they're like my child needs to testify whether they're eight years old 12 years old or 16 years old well there are studies that actually suggest that children will adopt feelings and beliefs about a non-custodial parent that the custodial parent has, okay? So, you know, standard visitation schedules at every other weekend thing, you're actually already eroding your relationship with your kid. And they will begin to adopt the beliefs and feelings of the custodial parent, okay? So you're fighting right now not to erode your relationship unless you're getting you know substantially more uh physical custody than 33 percent so in terms of your regular weekly contact with the child whether you're not actually getting physical custody because of some court order or not you know telecommunications and the internet provide you this ability to establish regular contact. And the important thing here is, is that children at some age will become smart, smart enough to know that mom is preventing me from having a relationship with dad. They will become on your team eventually. Okay. The other thing that's important to consider because Mark's bringing up the difference in age here is in Oklahoma, 
A kid's got an intelligent preference at the age of 12. Now, I don't know if that's the same in, in uh, California or not. Uh, they, they have a right in California. You have a right to testify at 14, but the judge doesn't have to ever consider it. Judges have to take the intelligent preference of a 12 year old and at a temporary order hearing now where they've got to make findings of fact and conclusions of law. You know, if your 12 year old is saying they want to be around you, that's really, really strong evidence. And when you're talking about settling these cases, Every mediator that you're going to deal with is going to tell the other side, hey, this 12-year-old kid is stating a preference for X. Now, whether that's for you or against you is a big deal. Another tool that we use here in Oklahoma is to appoint a public defender to represent the children. That works because a kid's express interest is going to be used. Now, while we see guardian ad litems being used potentially politically as a tool to advance by certain parties. This is not the case with the public defender. A public defender has to argue the express interests of that child. Guardian ad litems, hired gun. In, in many cases, hired gun. And sometimes you really got to fight a guardian ad litem. Bryden, I mean, Bryden, Brian smoked a guardian ad litem here recently at a trial and got everything completely disregarded. But that was a very expensive process for the dad who had to fight that guardian ad litem. And the risk was that this high-powered former prosecutor, now guardian ad litem, is going to come in court and shit on, I mean, and uh, screw dad. You can say whatever you want. I'm sorry. I didn't no, hey, hey, hey we're, we're on Facebook and YouTube. You can say whatever you want. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, so... You know what I'm saying, Mark. The reality of it is, is that they can pay. It's they can pay to play with a guardian ad litem. Not the same when you're talking about a public defender. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of any. In most cases, any neutral third parties. Um, I think at least here in the state of California, we don't necessarily have guardian ad litems or child's attorneys that are commonplace. But the big one out here are evaluators. And Custody evaluators. That's bougie out. Yeah, I'm, I'm in so I'm in L.A. I'm in Orange County. I'm in I'll admit that 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 I think that's probably more common in the wealthier areas. Yeah, but, definitely. but uh, it, it just brings they can't do anything. They don't really find anything out that a judge can't find out unless there are legitimate issues. And so you're just bringing another party that potentially could be biased into the process. Absolutely. All right. So what, what we'll transition to now is we'll take some questions from the viewers. So um, drop your questions in. We'll take three or four questions here. Let me find the, the first one here. All right. So we got Jeffrey's question. What if the judge literally does nothing in your case, even when the mother doesn't file any responses or anything at all? So we, what happens if they file a motion for default judgment? And usually this is going to happen in a paternity case, not in a divorce, because women want property division. So they'll play the game in the divorce. Now, sometimes women think that if they ignore your paternity case, you know, that's nothing's going to happen. Well, in a default judgment, we can ask the judge to give us exactly what we want. And if we're able to serve her, even better. If we're not, you're going to have to take the extra costs of publication, etc. But eventually, we're going to get an order. Once we get that order, we're going to ask for a writ of assistance, and we're going to go over to the sheriff's office, and we're going to pick that kid up. Yeah, that's the same thing. In California, you have 30 days to respond to a petition. And if you don't respond within those 30 days, you can file for default. And like you said, you can get exactly what you want. There's going to be some added expense. There's going to be some added complication um, to getting it actually uh, to, to actually executing on that and getting it followed. But if they don't respond, I don't know if they're there. I don't think there's a state where you can't file for default. There's going to be a period of time they have to respond. And then you need to either yourself or your attorney needs to be filing for default literally that first day it's possible. The issue you run into with the default judgments, Jeffrey, is that 
you know, courts will disturb those because generally speaking, these district courts want to rule in the best interests of the kid. And so even if you get a default judgment and mom decides that now, okay, she wants to show up and play the game, it's, it's possible that the court will set aside that kind of a default judgment and in favor of effectively litigating the best interests. Yeah, same thing here in California. You can file a motion to set aside. Judges would rather litigate cases out on the merits than have decisions made via default judgment. But like Jeffrey said, your initial problem was she's not responding. Well, now she's playing the game. Probably, yeah, hopefully. All right, so I got one here for Brian. Um, so what do you do when you come across a biased gal? Well, I can tell you what I did in the case that um, Keith taught was mentioning. Um, when I had a, uh, I had a particularly negative um, GAL report where it was pretty clear that this GAL had taken pity upon mom because mom told the GAL a sob story without bogging us down with a lot of detail. Basically, what I did was I made I filed a, I, I filed a uh, both a motion to remove the GAL and a motion in limine to try to get her report and her testimony kept out of the case. Now, what ended up happening was the judge did let it in, but it did the, the motions paid dividends because it got the judge to look really hard at her testimony. And it also had the side benefit as she took it personally and then decided to go and on, get on the stand and rip on my client even harder, which made her even less credible. Um, I think the first thing to do to deal with a, with a guardian ad litem is you want to get in there early and do everything and do what you need to do to discredit that person. Um, and, and that may be in an extreme case of bias, you will file the motion and throw the dice with the judge. Because even if you don't get the judge to remove the GAL, you've already put it on their radar that this is somebody to be suspicious of. Those motions, even if you don't win it in the short term, have, can have, a, can have an, an impact on the way the judge will, will look at the evidence later. Because they will read that motion before they hear the testimony. And so now they're listening to the testimony with it in the back of their head that somebody's calling that GAL's um, neutrality into question. So I think the first thing to do is get after a motion, whether it's a motion in limine, whether it's a motion in um, a, a motion to remove, so you can immediately alert the judge to the fact that this is somebody who may not be trustworthy. And then you want to, and then when you get to trial, if it goes that far, you you need to continually reiterate that point. This is not somebody that can be trusted, and you want to do that anytime you're dealing with a witness who, 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 has, a, who has an axe to grind. And I think, I think you made a, a broader point within that in terms of in family court. Here in California and really all over the country, these judges see dozens, if not hundreds of cases a week. And you have to tell these judges the same things multiple times a lot of times for it to stick. So building that narrative, so you talked about it in, in the process where there may be an issue with a gal. You start saying that and you say it enough times, it's going to start building that pattern. And that should be part of your strategy in the case. You have these overarching themes and every single time you file something with the court, every single time you're in front of this judge, you need to, you need to stick with your themes. You need to continue to hammer those things home with your judge. So we'll go ahead and we'll take one last question. And I think, um, Keith, you spoke a lot on this um, earlier in the interview. So we talked about the erosion of relationships. So a lot of dads go through the process where they have a relationship. Then for a period of three months, six months, a year, they have no interaction with their kids. They don't they, they completely lose that relationship. Um, how would you go about telling the judge this narrative or that story? So what about past evidence of relationships with your child? Well, yeah, of course, we're always competing against the status quo when women decide to restrict and alienate. But the reality of it is, is that alienation is not in a child's best interest and a party who is going to alienate the other is not suitable for a sole custody award, frankly. But the best tool for us when we see this kind of thing is actually to hire a parenting coordinator. And this is not because you're not good at telling your story, but because there's a guy out there or a female 
a woman who's gonna whoop, who's gonna live your situation and see the problems over here and be able to tell the judge about it. So obviously, ask, 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 unless you're in California because you can get a protective order pretty easy and then be screwed for five years. In Oklahoma, you're gonna you're gonna have a much better ability to ask the woman for opportunity to see your children. And we're always advising clients, hey, do not just stop because she says no. Ask, ask why, continue, persist. Don't harass, ask. And the reality of it is, is if she's bulwarking you from having a relationship with her kid, that's gonna be our argument when we go and say, she doesn't get sold, maybe our guy gets sold, because he's gonna facilitate a relationship between mom and the kid, and she ain't. Yeah. Do you guys have the friendly parent factor in Oklahoma? Yes, we do. Yeah, so we, we have that in California too. Sometimes I think it gets completely ignored. And by friendly parent factor, um, I mean, statutorily it says that there should be preference given to the parent that will facilitate a relationship with the other parents. Precisely. So that's something that goes back to knowing your state laws and knowing what you should do. And, and I'll, I'll kind of piggyback on, on your piece there, um, Keith, about continuing to ask. Obviously, in California, there are major issues with the DV law and the family code. But if you ask once and then you just stop or you ask twice and you just stop, if you go to file a contempt, you're not necessarily going to have the evidence to be able to prove that they withheld visitation on this date. You have to continue to do as the court order says. You have to continue to try to see your kid. But as you said, I think three times there, you cannot harass. Being polite, being short, being brief, and being specifically about the child can prevent a lot of those things from coming up. Because I see a lot of times guys get themselves in trouble because they get frustrated by the gatekeeping mom does and then they end up saying something that is going to get completely taken out of context in court, is going to get the worst reading uh, possible by opposing counsel, and they're going to try to make you sound like a monster. And we can get you to court in 21 days if she's not giving you the visitation that a court has ordered. So remember, you know, your best action is proactive action. 21 yeah. days. So what's the, is there, is there kind of a fast lane for when the, yeah. You're, you, you get a date in 21 days, judge will hear your argument. If she's not giving you a court visitation, physical custody, we're not talking about legal custody issues, physical custody, we get you in court 21 days. We need something like that in California. We got a couple counties out here that you don't get a stamped copy back for six weeks. So why do we have the D plus, man? Uh, California's got a D. So, uh, oh, okay. I, and, yeah, so Cal California is one of the few states below Oklahoma. But uh, all right, all right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, and, and that grade with the facts, findings and conclusions with the temporary order preference, it, that's from 2019. So come November, I'm guessing that's probably a C plus or B minus even type of statutory scheme because that temporary order is huge, um, oh, having yeah. that preference. Oh, yeah. And if you have any questions, dads.law, dads are not disposable. We're on your side, boys. <laughs> Thank you for that. So as we wrap up here, um, I want to give both of you guys a chance. Is, is there anything that, that you want to leave the viewers with tonight? Hey, guys, we care about you out there. We care about people supporting fathers' rights. We're out here fighting the fight, and uh, we're winning the battle. And every day we're pushing this game even further, and one day equal process under the law. Awesome. Awesome. So once again, we have uh, Tulsa Fathers Rights Attorneys, Keith J. Flynn, Brian Jackson. You can find them at dads.law. Uh, you guys' practice is statewide, correct? Correct. Awesome. So statewide, no matter where you're at in the state of Oklahoma, if you're looking for someone that is truly going to fight and protect for your rights as a father, um, look them up online reach out to them um, and have a conversation with them. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us tonight um, and imparting the wisdom on me and our viewers. Um, thank you, so, thank you. Yeah, and we'll have to do this again sometime soon. Um, to all the viewers out there, um, I'm Mark Real, realfathersrights.com. 
and we'll be back with you guys next Thursday. We'll see you guys.